Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Episode 9, Animal Life in All Its Glory. I've been looking forward to this episode because, as you might have guessed, it's Attenborough time. And who hasn't wanted to roll out an Uncle Dave imitation saying something like, Here, in the vast expanses of the world below the war in the heavens, roam a multitude of species, a panoply of life, a cornucopia of animals great and small, in a dizzying display of the wonders of life itself, writ large and writ small. Or similar. But I'll restrain myself while all the time giving a tip of the hat to the great man. When talking about animal life in the world below the war in the heavens, we have to understand that the continent, and there's only one, remember, is huge, 6,000 kilometres from east to west, more or less, and 4,500 from north to south. It has many different climatic zones and ecosystems. It's tropical in the north, temperate to the south, uh, and cold even, down in Jellox, the island off the south coast. It has a huge area of hot desert and hot semi-arid desert in the interior, some savanna grasslands, some tropical offshore islands, rainforest, alpine mountain glaciers in the far south in Jellox as well. Life has a way And in the world below the war in the heavens, it's evolved to populate all of these places, with life forms ranging from the hauntingly familiar to the fascinatingly bizarre. In semi-technical terms, think of the fauna of the world below the war in the heavens as an example of convergent evolution. Like flying squirrels and gliding possums look similar and have similar behaviours but are totally unrelated, Much of the fauna in the world below the war in the heavens fills ecological niches similar to the animals in our world, and thus have evolved to look somewhat similar. Or, not to put too fine a point on it, they're very recognisable, so that their horses and our horses are so analogous, so alike, that for all intents and purposes, we may as well call them horses. Same with dogs, pigs, cattle and so on. They're the same thing, and isn't nature wonderful? Now, I'm no molecular biologist or genomic taxonomist, just an interested and enthusiastic amateur. And, as usual, I'm drawing on the work of others and also drawing on stories here, um, anecdotes, legends and, possibly, exaggerations told by those who have braved the wilderness areas of the world below the war in the heavens. We'll get to some of them later. The first thing that a visitor from our world would notice about the animal life in the world below the war in the heavens, that is, if the visitor was at all interested in fauna, is that the ratio of mammals and reptiles in the world below the war in the heavens is the opposite of ours. There are far more reptiles than mammals, and the roles in the ecosystems are pretty much reversed. Uh, The major predators are reptiles, major herbivores are reptiles, snakes, lizards and turtles are far more common than lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! Mammals fill some niches, of course, with lots of scurrying and burrowing animals being mammals, which means that rodents are aplenty. And since the world below the war in the heavens is 
abounding with reptiles, that naturally means that it has an abundance of bird life as well, seeing as birds are basically reptiles. Now, I'm aware that might be an oversimplification, and I'm probably missing certain taxonomic nuances, but the fact remains that the world below the war in the heavens has many, many birds of all sorts, from garden variety birds to seabirds to large flightless birds, and some types that have no parallel here, like the huge wallowing gull, a 10 metre long flightless plankton eater, or the mysterious cave dwelling shadow hawk, whose hunting method involves dropping stalactites on unwary prey. It'd be a twitch's paradise, the world below the war in the heavens. Let's start at the top with the apex predators, because as well as having considerable charisma, think tigers and bears in our world, they do represent a danger to the inhabitants of the world below the war in the heavens. So an awareness of them is useful, especially when venturing into the wilderness. King Mephon I of Anarchist, 650-658, for instance, didn't show due deference to the wildlife, mostly by being a fanatical hunter and spending much of his reign riding about the far reaches of the city-state with a band of enthusiastic lackeys slaughtering just about any animal he clapped eyes on. He added a gallery to the palace solely for his hunting trophies, and the ghastly place terrified children for generations before King Corrin, in 784, removed all the stuffed heads and turned the gallery into another place to hang portraits, just what they needed. King Mephon, fittingly, was killed in 658 while hunting, breaking his neck when thrown from his horse, which had been startled by a rabbit. So, what are the apex predators in the world below the war in the heavens? Well, it has snakes of the size we don't see here anymore. Python-like constrictors 15 or 20 metres long, not being uncommon. Some are huge and bulky, preferring to live near watercourses. Others are leaner and more often found in the desert or the arid areas. But both prey on rodents and also on herd animals. They have been known to eat people, but we're not their preferred meal. What about venomous snakes? Well, the world below the war in the heavens is home to scores of species that are highly venomous. Most are timid and will avoid confrontation, but some are notably aggressive. The silver-banded snake of the lightly wooded areas that abound in the central east of the continent is notorious for defending what it considers to be its territory, and it will actively chase intruders. Its venom is perhaps the most toxic in the world below the war in the heavens and has been known to kill a fully grown person in under a minute. What's worse, the silver-banded snake is quite happy to strike multiple times if it's really angry. Definitely one to avoid. In addition to snakes, large monitor lizards roam about the warmer climes and some of them can reach four or five metres in length. Their rough, warty skin is reinforced by tiny bones, which give the monitors a sort of natural chain mail. And the older the monitor, the more formidable its encrusted protection becomes. They have a forked tongue and formidably bad breath, probably from their liking for Noshion carrion. The more rotten, the better. They might look slow and clumsy, but can lunge with surprising speed. Both their claws and their jaws are fearsome, but since they're partial to carrion as much as they like fresh prey, 
keep a dead rabbit or two in your pocket at all time when these monitors are around. When you run, drop the rabbits and hope the monitors pause to chow down on them instead of going after you. Yeah, yeah, look, I'm only joking. If you have a couple of dead rabbits in your pockets, the monitors will smell you a mile away and eat both you and the conies. You want more about apex predators? How about the crocodiles that abound in the north of the continent? The number of varieties is disputed and no one is truly keen to get close enough to check distinguishing characteristics. Small varieties do exist, both in salt and freshwater, but so do gargantuan varieties, with specimens reaching 20 metres, not uncommon. Crocodiles aren't confined to the coast either. Waterholes and watercourses throughout the interior host these alarming beasts as well. So people need to keep their wits about them. The existence of the fabled land crocodile hasn't been established beyond doubt, but enough terrified anecdotes exist to suggest that there's something out there. One legend speaks of crocodiles that live in the worn-down mountains of the far northwest, rocky outcrops that have springs, and so there's some permanent water. These rock crocodiles are supposed to lie in wait, preserving their energy until something blunders past, and then they lunge. Apparently, when they charge... It's something shocking, and your feet just can't keep still. Rock crocodiles. Scary. Turtles are also common in the world below the war in the heavens, both seagoing and on land, with some species the size of an SUV. A favourite of mine is the rainbow tortoise that lives in a wide area on the uninhabited south coast of the central continent, about the size of a dinner plate but with a shell, you've guessed, that shimmers with the colours of the rainbow. Some speculation is about postulating that some interaction with heavenly scales is responsible for this display, but this is disputed. What isn't disputed is that once the animal dies, the colours fade and disappear, and since they don't do well in captivity, the only way to see these fascinating creatures is to embark on a dusty and potentially dangerous expedition into the wilderness. Worth it, though. Now, let's talk of marine life. Fish are everywhere, with some strange and wild species and others that are congruent with ours. But there are no sea mammals at all. No seals, dolphins, dugongs or whales. Instead, large reptiles fill those niches. And while smaller iguana-type lizards fill the spots that otters, beavers and platypuses do here, the large saltwater reptiles include some gigantic and terrifying creatures, 20 metres or so long. Some of these are fish-like in shape, others are more like crocodiles, and some are virtual sea serpents with long, sinuous necks. Large herbivorous reptiles and birds float around the oceans too, grazing on tiny sea life and playing host to shoals of fish. Some of these have actually been hunted with greater and lesser success. Again, with so much of the animal life of the world below the war in the heavens being recognisable, much bird life is similar to ours. And because of the relative lack of mammals and the preponderance of reptiles, birds have filled many of the ecological niches that mammals have here, including, again, apex predators. Imagine flightless birds bigger than emus or ostriches, but 
built more heavily and with beaks and claws made for ripping. So we're talking a five metre tall cassowary, more or less. Various species of these killer birds exist right across the continent from woods to savannah to desert. Many of them come in gorgeous colours and have flashy plumes, so the courtship displays are fabulous. Of course, these sometimes lead to bloody fights where the males try to impress the females that their genes are most worthy of being perpetuated. The feathers truly fly. Flightless monster killer birds aren't the only avians to watch out for. The raptors in the world below the war in the heavens have grown to enormous size as well. They're eagles having wingspans fully twice the largest we have today. They can't quite pick up and carry off a fully grown human, but they might try. So while in the wilderness it pays to keep an eye on the skies. And what about the parrots, or parrot analogues anyway? The continent of the world below the war in the heavens is home to a huge variety of parrots, from tiny fig parrots and those that flock in huge numbers in the inland like flying jewels, to much larger cockatoos, crested with beaks, formidable enough to crack coconuts. Smart and full of character, parrots are everywhere in the world below the war in the heavens, and over the centuries have found their way into homes there as cheeky and fascinating pets. Let's talk about the interaction between animals and humanity in the world below the war in the heavens. This animal life, of course, lives alongside a spreading and possibly deadly species, one that's found itself at home in nearly every part of the continent. That species, of course, is humanity. This interaction has established a relationship going back thousands of years, uh, that of domestication. As for us, the people of the world below the war in the heavens domesticated a number of species for food, milk, bearing of burdens, and simply for companionship. Most of these domesticated species have been mammals, horses, cattle, sheepdogs, but birds have been domesticated too. There's geese, ducks, turkeys and chickens in and around farms and homesteads. There's really been no point trying to domesticate the giant monster killer birds when you think about it. Despite a number of efforts in different parts of the land, no reptiles have ever been domesticated in the world below the war in the heavens. The interaction between people and animals has, of course, had consequences in addition to domestication. We're talking about nearly 2,000 years of history here and our exploration of the world below the war in the heavens, and of course some thousands of years of history before that, and that means we can't avoid the matter of extinctions. As a less industrialised society than ours, the people in the world below the war in the heavens had had less impact on ecosystems than we have. But they've still changed the world. Land clearing from expanding settlements, for instance, uh, and hunting always has been a major pastime. Several species seen as game have been eradicated entirely. Some iconic species have disappeared from wide areas or rumoured to have disappeared much in the same way the bears no longer roam the United Kingdom. For instance, in the 14th century, stories about some extravagantly golden-plumed birds in the tropics of the far north, uh, one of them being the auric whistler, sparked an avidity in fashionable circles in Anarchist, which of course led to nobles in other realms following suit. The result was a sort of avian gold rush, and within a decade, the species was no more. <laughs> 
The tropics of the far north being home to a number of painful and debilitating diseases, though, meant that many of those hunting the auric whistler died long before even seeing one. So in some ways, nature struck back when it could. Other extinctions were well before the period we're exploring. Some tens of thousands of years ago, vast herds of large herbivorous reptiles roamed the grasslands of the east of the continent, between the mountains and the central desert. Herds that are no more. Huge bone pits have been uncovered, and the skeletons display the unmistakable signs of butchery, though. L.X. Ulhaq writes in the complete book of herbivore reptiles that these creatures displayed typical behaviours of herd beasts, with dominant males commanding harems, young being protected by grown-ups, and challenges between young males and older males for supremacy. Apparently, they were also very tasty, and thus wiped out for barbecue, basically. As well as animals perfect for food, other species that can trace their disappearance to the effects of humanity tend to be beasts that preyed on flocks, several types of monitor lizards across the continent, for example, or those who suffered from the effects of land clearing. Other extinctions have been traced to changes in the local environment. The swamp growler, for instance, and the caldera hen and the cave springer, And most of these are only known through remains and stories. The world below, the war in the heavens. Well, it's time for a case study. With the spread of humanity across the continent, settlers who went far beyond the boundaries of then civilization provide some of the most interesting reports of wildlife beyond the usual. First encounters, so to speak. In 1590, during the reign of Queen Talia the Sailor in Anaquist, the Infi family left the city-state and headed northwest into the increasingly arid country out there, apart from a series of large rivers they had to cross, the waters of which came from the mountain range that marches from the far north of the continent to the south, before the rivers empty into the ocean off the mid-south coast. Finally establishing a holding on the banks of the larger of these two rivers, the Craglin, with the aim of farming, running cattle and sheep, the Ingfi family, all on their own, were pioneers of the sort that abounded in the world below the war in the heavens for centuries. A large family, the parents encouraged pioneer hardiness and independence, but they didn't neglect artistic pursuits, making sure music, literature and art were part of children's lives. One result of this was that the middle daughter, Ponsonia, became an excellent self-taught artist. When this was allied with a naturally inquisitive outlook, she could be said to be the forerunner of the later amateur naturalists, as she compiled hundreds of sketches of the flora and fauna around the wilderness home, and it's proved to be an invaluable record of the natural world of the time. Ponsonia Ingfi's drawings are the first known documentation of the family of birds known as the Scrub Warblers, a diverse group known for their melodious song and the sometimes alarming barb-like whisker feathers on both males and females. Her drawings also differentiate between what were later accepted to be two species of crocodile in the Cracklin River, the larger mosaic crocodile and the slightly less bulky, therefore more streamlined, reed crocodile. The drawings of the red-banded parrot are the only record of this species, 
and have inspired many since then to search for it. Such was its startling coloration, but to no avail. She was fond of parrots and had a long-lived grey cockatoo as a companion for many years. We have many, many drawing of Cheeky Boy. Ponsonia Ingfi didn't neglect the small either. She was fascinated by ants and spent hours observing them, completing many drawings of different types of ants at work, gathering food, engaging in war with rivals, exploring their tiny world. Butterflies, too, were a favourite, and a small bright blue butterfly to this day is known as the Ponsonian Blue. Later generations of naturalists have held Ponsonia Ingfi in high regard, not just for her detailed paintings and drawings, but also for the meticulous way she annotated these works, noting where she saw each specimen, the time of year, and also any sounds or noises the animals made in the wild, an invaluable aid to those later seeking a sighting. All in all, she described hundreds of birds, reptiles, insects and mammals, all with delicacy and insight. Some of her descriptions are actually lyrical, a true tribute to the web of life she experienced. Antonia Ingfi lived well into her 90s and never left the family home. She was never lonely, though, as her famed beauty and cleverness attracted suitors from vast distances. While she never had children, she never lacked for lovers, and some of those, when they left with her permission, took samples of her drawings to the great city-states, where they astonished both scholars and artists. Queen Talia herself extended royal patronage to the far-off Ponsonia, and the two had a friendly correspondence for years. The largest collection of Ponsonia Ingfi's drawings is assembled in one of the many galleries in the Royal Palace in Anaquist. Much like our world, the world below the war in the heavens has a rich tradition of legendary beasts that play a part in storytelling and also in heraldry. Some have parallels with our own legendary beasts with unicorns, griffins and sea serpents appearing in tales right across the continent. But the world below the war in the heavens has a catalogue of their own strange imaginary beasts. So let's have a look at a few of them. The shelled serpent. Imagine a tortoise shell the size of a bus, but instead of having a tortoise inside, it's the home of a horde of large snakes, each many, many metres long. In a cooperative fashion, they can act as legs and scurry around, retreating when danger comes along. Then there's the Nimbus Beast. The Nimbus Beast is one of those legendary creatures that populate folklore. The variation in the world below the war in the heavens is that when the Nimbus Beast is caught, it's said to grant its capturer three reverse wishes. That is, if riches are wished for, the Nimbus Beast takes away anything of value. If long life is wished for, the wisher finds their life ending far sooner than they expected. Naturally, this demands a certain linguistic dexterity from the beast's captor, and many stories tell of humorous and or tragic results. The Nimbus Beast gets its name because it's surrounded by light, a glow that makes it difficult to determine its actual physical details, but does make it easy to pursue at night. The third of the legendary beasts for now is the bristle hound. It holds up shields. If it sees a shield, it stands on its hind legs and supports it. So that's why it pops up in heraldic devices throughout the world below the war in the heavens. The 
here's where things get tricky. Are magical animals truth or fiction in the world below the war in the heavens? Are we talking legendary beasts, like the shelled serpent here, or mysterious animals with magical powers that really, truly exist in the world below the war in the heavens? Typically, most of these stories can be discounted as travellers' yarns, strange imaginings coming from people who've spent far too long in the hot sun and away from civilization. simply tall tales coming from the overexcited. After all, any animal that can evade Bob the Hunter's extraordinary tracking skills must be magical, right? But we mustn't be too quick to judge here, because some evidence suggests that the stories may have a grain of truth in them, especially when talking about the vast inland wilderness so much of which is still unknown and unexplored in contemporary times in the world below the war in the heavens. This vast inland expanse is the site of many heaven falls, it being such a large area after all, it makes sense. Prospectors and explorers since time immemorial have gone into this region for just this purpose. What are the chances some animals have accidentally cosied up to heavenly debris and been affected by it? Consider the theatre birds from the far northeast of the continent, creatures who are well known for gathering shiny objects and arranging them around an elaborately woven stage and cyclorama, the place for their courtship dances. Could something similar exist in the inland? Birds or reptiles or small mammals attracted to the glitter of scales, dragging them into burrows or underground chambers and sleeping on them like smog. If so, what changes could the scales have wrought? By the way, I'm not suggesting that dragons exist in the world below the war in the heavens, even though that would be outstandingly cool. Not a hint exists of dragons, not a story, legend tale or a fever dream. Still, one can hope, can't one? Putting dragons to one side, if we postulate animals having some contact with heaven falls, is it too much of a stretch to imagine they'd be affected? It's well known that people can become affected by scales, especially those with long-standing exposure. Some people seem more susceptible than others, so could some animals be more vulnerable? All I can say is, watch this space. and strange. Much of its fauna is so similar to our own as to be indistinguishable. To imagine that they all would be, well that's just folly. What we could consider outlandish, exotic and flat out weird lurk around every corner and it'd be a constant reminder to a visitor from our world that they're definitely not in Kansas anymore. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.